Friends, good morning. Good morning and welcome to First Presbyterian Church here at this Sunday School Hour. My name is Ryan Bonfilio. I'm one of the ministers here at First Pres, and I double as the scholar in residence. And we're so glad to have you here for this summer Sunday School program. If you've been with us in the past few weeks, you'll know that this is a special Sunday School edition of a program that we called Theology Matters. And here at First Pres, Theology Matters is simply the name uh, that we give to a particular program in our Christian education portfolio that offers short four-week courses that are designed to engage in a thoughtful manner topics related to the Bible, theology, faith, and culture in a way that's accessible and engaging to a lay audience. So we're trying to do seminary-like things, but in a manner that's more relevant and engaging to people who will never go to seminary, which I presume uh, is a number of you out there. So we are grateful that you are here for this. Theology Matters typically takes place uh, in the evenings, typically on a Wednesday evening or Thursday evening. We wanted to bring it here to Sunday morning to give a taste of this program to folks who might not be able to make it out during the evenings for various reasons, either because you're in the choir or have young kids or uh, work or commutes or other sorts of things. Uh, as a public service announcement, uh, we've just come out with brochures that outline the three Theology Matters courses that we'll be offering throughout this coming 2017-18 year. The brochures are there at the edge of the, edge of the stage and also on top of the piano. We'll have these distributed uh, more thoroughly next week. But we're going to be offering three different courses in this upcoming year. The first course is called Hymns of the Reformation. It's a little bit small to see there. But this course in October, I'll co-teach with Jens Korndorfer, our organist and director of music, and we're going to be thinking about the ways in which Reformation theology intersect with music and hymns. In fact, and how hymns were one of the greatest ways Reformation thought was transferred throughout Europe and then eventually uh, into America. Our second course in January is called The Gospels in Comparison. And this course will be exploring the ways in which the, what are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to, we're going to look at those texts side by side and wonder together about places where they're different how they tell parables differently, how they tell the story of the resurrection differently. We're going to look at those examples of differences between the Gospels and wonder about why they're different and why that matters theologically. And then finally, later in the spring, in April into early May, we're going to do a course uh, on wisdom in the Old Testament. Uh, I'll co-teach with our intern in teaching and theological education, Lydia Foreman, on this topic. Here we're going to explore the notion of wisdom in the Old Testament, including how wisdom looks differently in the three books in the Old Testament that we most char uh, traditionally characterize as wisdom literature, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. Each of them have a different perspective on what the wise life looks like. So we'll reflect on those differences and think about how it might inform our approach to wisdom in the church today. So those three courses are ahead of us in this coming year. I hope that you guys will attend. They are free of charge. They meet here in Fifield Hall. We have good snacks from... Highland Bakery for you to enjoy, so hopefully you might come out uh, and participate th in them in the year ahead. One other public service announcement, then I'll pray and get started. Next week, as many of you know, next week, August 27th, we're having a church picnic. It's kind of our official start to the church year. Uh, that week, we only have one service, so there's no 9 a.m. service. There's only 11 a.m. service. The picnic is here in Fifield Hall, which means that we, for this Sunday school class, need to go elsewhere. So Sunday school next week 
We'll meet in the Berean room, also known as the reception room, which is just across the way over there. We'll have everything set up similarly, so, and we'll have signs posted if you come here, but they need to set up the room for the picnic beforehand, so we need uh, to move elsewhere. All right, let me pray, and then we'll get us started uh, for this program this morning. God, we're grateful to be gathered together on this Sunday uh, in the midst of a world that so often feels fractured and in discord. We pray and hope for the promise of your peace to come upon our lives and to come upon this world to bring people together and not to drive them apart. We pray all this in your name. Amen. All right. This is week three of a four-week consideration of the history of how the Bible has been translated from its original Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic all the way down the line through centuries and centuries and centuries until finally today we have the Bible in English. And not just the Bible in one English translation, but rather the Bible in dozens and dozens and dozens of English translations. The purpose of this course is to wonder about how we got from that original language or those original languages to all of these versions in English. And how do all of these versions in English differ from one another? And what's the best translation for you? What, what perspectives and philosophies drive these different translations? And why do they matter for how we read scripture? This is a topic that we're considering throughout this four-week course. And in this week, we're going to look at the revision of the famous KJV Bible into various other different versions that many of you uh, will know. Conventional wisdom has it that no matter how skillful a translator might be, something is always lost in the translation pr process. We know that phrase, right? Lost in translation. If any of you have ever have traveled overseas, you'll have come face to face with this in some vivid and sometimes humorous ways. For instance, consider the American-based uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken Rest, uh, fast food restaurant. Its tagline, of course, is finger licking good. But when KFC made a foray into the Chinese market in the early 1980s, there was a slight problem with how Mandarin translated this logo, finger licking good. In Mandarin, that phrase became, eat your fingers off. Now, I don't know Mandarin, so I'm not going to criticize the translation, but from an advertising perspective, I would not want my food chain to have the tagline, eat your fingers off. Fortunately, uh, some folks in the company caught this error early on, and they corrected it to a, another phrase in Mandarin that more closely approximated finger looking good. And good thing they did, because now KFC, believe it or not, is the most popular Western fast food chain in China with over 1,200 different franchises. These sorts of errors are not at all uncommon when we travel overseas. Consider these other examples. Uh, in, a in a Nairobi restaurant, you can find this phrase. Customers who find our waitresses rude ought to see the manager. Now, you can read that in a couple different ways. Either the manager is even more rude than the waitresses, or you can complain to the manager about the rude waitress. Uh, on a menu in a Swiss restaurant, and mind you, I traveled to Switzerland uh, this past year, and I found this to be somewhat true, our wines leave you nothing to hope for, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> or in a hotel lobby in Bucharest, the lift is being fixed for the next day. During that time, we regret that you will be unbearable. <laughs> Literally true, but perhaps also metaphorically true. Finally, one other example. Uh, in an advertisement by a Hong Kong dentist, 
teeth extracted by the latest Methodists. <laughs> now, as a Presbyterian, uh, perhaps this is true, but even my Methodist friends at Candler, uh, I don't think they're good at extracting teeth. In either case, mistakes like this are quite common. And despite the conventional wisdom, and here's the hinge to the actual topic this week, despite the conventional wisdom that something is lost in translation, there are some Christian circles that actually believe that there's something to be gained in a translation, not lost. And perhaps the most vivid example of this is what is known as the KJV, King James Version, a particular translation that Cassie talked about last week, the KJV only movement. How many of you heard? You've all heard of the KJV? Yes? How many of you have heard of KJV only churches? Only a couple of you. There are phenomena uh, in America in the present time, and, and here's what's interesting about what they believe. Um, it, well, first of all, let me say it's a collection of loosely affiliated, mostly Protestant churches that believe that the King James Version, first published in 1611, is the only translation of Scripture, the only translation of Scripture, that accurately captures the Word of God. Now, not only do they believe that the other English translations are inferior, as is suggested by this sign, the NIV, the non-inspired version, instead of the New International Version. Not only do they believe that the KJV is superior to other English translations, but that in terms of authority and sacredness, they believe that the KJV surpasses even the original Greek and Hebrew of the Bible. That somehow the translation is better than the original. In fact, uh, uh, in, these, in this tradition, it is the KJV, not the original Greek and Hebrew, that is divinely inspired. The original manuscripts aren't divinely inspired. It's only this translation that's divinely inspired. And it's even considered a form of new or advanced revelation. So far as to say that the original in Greek, they go so far as to say that the original Greek and Hebrew of the Bible should be corrected in light of the translation. If you go back to our KFC example, it would be like arguing that KFC in America should change its, uh, its slogan to eat your fingers off because of the translation in the Mandarin. That's the logic that's working out in the KJV tradition. I'm seeing a, supple, a couple folks shake their head. It, is, it does seem weird to us in many, in many ways, even if we have a high regard for the KJV, and I know that some of you do, I myself do, even if we have a high regard for the KJV, this sort of attitude that the translation is better than the original strikes us as somewhat odd. But let me assure you that this movement is alive and well today. By my count, there are nearly 300 KJV-only churches in Georgia alone to this day, some even here in Atlanta. And with them, you'll see uh, bumper stickers like this. If it ain't King James, it ain't Bible. That's the theology of this tradition. Or I don't know exactly what this means, but old-fashioned King James preaching as an advertisement for its church. Now, there might be good reason to like or even prefer the KJV over other translations. But I think this sort of thinking is flawed in at least two ways. First, we must remember that while the KJV is traditionally called a translation, it's actually not a translation. The KJV is a revision of other translations. It's a translation of a translation, or better yet, a revision of those translations. The KJV, historically, is a revision of what is known as the Bishop's Bible. And the Bishop's Bible was a revision of Coverdale and Tyndale's Bible. What I'm trying to say with this, pointing this out, is simply this. 
if we think that the KJV is inspired, or any praise we have for the KJV as a translation, really should trickle back and also go to the Bishop's Bible and the Coverdale Bible and the Tyndale Bible from which the KJV is derived. So the KJV is not particularly unique. The second reason we should be suspicious of the KJV-only movement is that from the very first printings of the KJV in 1611, there were obvious problems with the translation. That is to say, even if you like the language, there are things about the translation that are far from perfect. And I want to name three of them for you uh, as a way of thinking about why ultimately the KJV was revised. Three problems with the KJV. One, there were printing errors. Remember, this was a, a period where we did not have fancy printing presses as we do today, uh, or electronic capturing of images for, for printing. There was a printing press, but it was a painstaking process to actually set the type for any large book like the Bible. So not surprisingly, errors were made in how the, the type was set. And it, it, some of them are funny. Um, so for instance, uh, Matthew 23, 24, uh, Jesus is kind of criticizing the Pharisees for kind of taking pride in the fact that they tithe, but then not caring about weightier matters of the law. And Jesus says this to them. This is how it should read. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Have you all heard this before? Well, when the KJV was first printed, it appeared this way. You strain at a gnat, but swallow a camel. That doesn't make as much sense as strain out a gnat. This was not the intention of the translator. Just because of a printing error, there was an issue uh, that, that made the translation flawed. A more serious one, although in some ways a more uh, humorous one, is how this, uh, the seventh commandment of the Decalogue was translated. I won't give you a quiz to ask you to tell me what the seventh commandment is, uh, but here's how it should read. You shall not commit adultery. Unfortunately, in the printing of the early King James Bible, one key word <laughs> was left out. This came to be known as the adultery Bible uh, because it, it mistakenly gives the impression that one ought to commit adultery. That is not the official position of First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. So these were, and there were many other examples of this. There were errors in printing that needed to be revised. The second area, and this is a little more technical for you English teachers out there, but there were some grammatical errors in the KJV that would bother some of those of you who might have uh, certain English sensitivities. For instance, consider Matthew 16, 13. This is going to be a fill-in-the-blank quiz. When Jesus came into the coast of uh, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, blank, do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He's asking a question. What word goes in there? Who with an M? No. It should be who because the question is asking for a subject not an object of a verb. And so the, uh, the correct interrogative, if you go back to your GRE or SAT days, is who. In the KJV, we find whom. Now, that might not bother many of you, but it would bother some of you, and it's another type of error that would have to be changed. Another, I think, more humorous example comes from 1 Kings 13, 27. Uh, uh, and I won't go into, into detail about the context, but the verse goes like this, and he spake until his sons, unto his sons, saying, saddle me the ass, that is the donkey, and they saddled him. <laughs> now this leads to obvious confusions about who or what was saddled. Him makes sense because the ass is understood to be masculine, but him makes it seems like it's talking to the dad. 
So we would might want to correct this pronoun to it. So all of these reasons, again, are reasons we might uh, uh, revise the KJV. One final one that's a little bit different and a little bit more technical, but worth mentioning. The third problem is more complicated because it actually has to do with the version of the Greek New Testament that the KJV translators translated, right? We do not have access to the first edition of the letter of Paul to the Philippians. We do not have access to the first edition of the Gospel of Mark that Mark wrote. What we have are copies of copies of copies of copies down the line. I wish we had those originals. When the KJV was translated, the translators used what scholars thought to be the most reliable and ancient versions of the New Testament. So they used the best material that they had for their translation. That's great. The problem was, within 16 years of the KJV being published, KJV being published, archaeologists discovered New Testament manuscripts that were older and more authentic than the manuscripts that the KJV authors translated. So the issue is not with how they translated, but what they were actually looking at when they translated. Uh, one of those manuscripts was known as uh, Codex Alexandrinus from the fourth century CE. Uh, this was more ancient than the manuscripts that the KJV authors had access to in 1611. Um, it was not greatly different, but it was different in a number of places. And scholars uniformly believe that this manuscript better preserved the original New Testament than the manuscripts that the KGV authors had. Does that make sense? So far, they had a better original. Things got even more extreme uh, in 1844 when a German explorer named Konstantin von Tischendorf, what a great German name, Konstantin von Tischendorf, discovered um, a manuscript at St. Catherine's Monastery, which is at the base of the traditional site of uh, Mount Sinai, he discovered a manuscript that came to be known as Codex Sinaiticus that preserved an even more ancient version of the New Testament. So when scholars today uh, translate the New Testament, they use Codex Sinaiticus because it's a more ancient, more reliable form of the New Testament than what the KJV author or translators had in the first place. So for all these reasons and several more, there became a need to revise the KJV, even though it was highly regarded, and to come up with new translations. In fact, by the early 20th or mid 19th century, many such translations were beginning to emerge. And Cassie's going to walk you through the details of how the KJV was revised. But let me just offer two examples in America of translations that try to revise the KJV. My, I, I think you probably won't have heard of any of these because we don't find them still in the bookstores today, but yet they were important in American history. The first example of a translation that corrects the KJV, uh, or the first I want to highlight, is from the early 19th century by a man named Daniel Webster. Now, how do some of you know Daniel Webster? You know the dictionary, right? He was famous for creating this American dictionary that is still in use today in English classes, and you can get it online for free now and so on and so forth. He was famous for his work with this American dictionary, which was published in 1828. But the next big project that he turned to after the dictionary was completed, believe it or not, was a translation of the Bible. And he used as his base uh, the KJV. He had a high regard for the KJV. But he noted that since over 200 years had passed, since the KJV had, was first translated, Webster noted that languages change over time. And the way people said things in 1611 
is not the way people said things in 1833. Furthermore, Webster noted that, th that the way people said things in England in 1611 was not the same way that people said things in New England in 1833. So Webster thought that the language, he didn't think there was a problem with the translation, but he recognized a need for updating the wording. A couple examples of this. Um, I don't have, it, have them up there. Uh, a couple examples are this. For instance, he changed the phrase, take, th take no thought, take no thought, to be not anxious, right? He thought they had the same idea, but he thought be not anxious made more sense to the American reader in the early 19th century than take no thought. Uh, another example, he changed uh, all of the reference to the, to the Holy Ghost to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. He was feared that the terminology of ghost didn't make sense as much in American English in the early 19th century, so he updated it. He did other things like standardize the use of shall and will and should and would and so on and so forth. His revision was popular in many congregational churches in New England at this time period, though in general his Bible translation never reached the popularity and longevity of his dictionary. Here's one other example, and then I'll pass it to Cassie. The second worth mentioning is a translation by Julia E. Smith. And this was the first, Julia Smith was the first woman to do a complete translation of the Bible into English. The first woman to do a complete translation of the Bible into English. Uh, the circumstances surrounding the translation were fascinating. The Smith family were ardent followers of a pastor named William Miller, though not of the same Miller family that we have visiting with us today. Uh, but William Miller, uh, who predicted, this guy William Miller predicted that Christ would come again, that the world would end in 1843. And Miller based these predictions, these apocalyptic predictions, uh, on a certain interpretation of the book of Daniel. Now, Miller, or excuse me, Smith's family was a follower of the Miller, Millerite tradition, but here's the problem. 1843 came and went, and Christ didn't come back, and the world did not come to the end. So instead of concluding that Miller was a little bit wacky in his interpretation of Daniel, Smith just concluded, well, there must be a problem in translation. The problem must not be with the prediction, but with the, KJ, with, but with the way the KJV had translated the numbers that we find in the book of Daniel. So at the age of 55, this is actually incredible. At the age of 55, Julius Smith learns Hebrew for the first time. So if any of you are 55 and under, and still are interested in Hebrew. Uh, I'm teaching Hebrew this fall at Columbia. You're welcome to come and audit the course. We'd love to have you. Uh, so at 55, she learns Hebrew, and she comes up with a whole translation of not only Daniel, but the whole Old Testament to adjust the numbers so that it would still be possible to predict that Christ is coming back and the world is going to end. I find it hard to want a translation that will predict that the world is going to come to end soon. That's just my own uh, preference in that matter, but that's what Julia Smith does. Interestingly enough, she did not intend her translation to be published. It was just really for her own personal and family reflection, but the farm that she lived at in Vermont uh, got into debt and had all of these back taxes to pay, and so she eventually was persuaded to publish her translation at $2.50 apiece to raise money to pay back the taxes owed uh, on her farm, and for that reason, uh, that's how that, that Bible came to be published. Um, by many measures, her translation was not great, uh, but nevertheless, it marks an important moment in the history of the Bible and translation in America. But that's not the end of the story. 
it's only the beginning. And Cassie is going to walk you through some other important revisions of the KJV. Cassie? There were many reasons to revise the King James Version, but there were also resistance to a major overhaul. And in the late 19th century, the British Parliament finally approved a committee to begin considering revising the KJV. And so what we have here is we might think of as a family tree. The KJV being the matriarch or the patriarch of the family, and we have revisions upon revisions that come off of it. We're going to walk through some of those. So we start with the KJV in 1611. We remember the history. Ryan walked us through it. The KJV was a revision of what Bible? Y'all listening? Bishop. There you go. The Bishop's Bible. And the Bishop's Bible was based largely on the work of Wycliffe and uh, Tyndale. And so the KJV itself was a revision. And that was important in how the translators approached it. And that would also, that idea of being just a revision uh, became important in how some of these, these uh, more modern tra uh, translations based on the KJV, this would become important in how they understood their task. The first revision that was made was, like I said, in the late 19th century. Uh, British Parliament approved uh, the, the work to begin. A committee was assembled, around 50 people. There were scholars in England that were working on this primarily, but there were also scholars in America uh, that were invited to be part of this revision. This was going to be called the revised version, and it was truly to be a revision. The translators were to keep as closely as possible to the language of the KJV, and to make sure that they did, they made some rules. One of those rules was that a two-thirds majority vote was needed if any change was made to the KJV language. Now, if a change was proposed and it only earned a simple majority, that means it only earned 50% of the vote, not two-thirds, that would be included uh, in, a, in a note or in an appendix at the end. Well, we disagreed on this. This was another proposal, but it didn't actually make, it, uh, make the change happen in the revised version. To add to this, the English committee was working with the American committee uh, and the American Committee, of course, was across the Atlantic. Now, this was over 100 years before email was invented. It was 50 years before the first transatlantic telephone call. And you can imagine the process was slow, painful, cumbersome. The, uh, the revisions had to be sent, I, I suppose by boat, <laughs> I don't even know, across the Atlantic. They showed up in America. The Americans would look at it, review it, mark it up with their suggestions. They would stick it on another boat. It would go back across to England. This happened a couple times. Uh, you can imagine that was a, it was a bit of an unworkable scheme. In the end, any suggestions made by the Americans had to meet what kind of a vote? Two-thirds, right? And since they weren't there in person to defend their cause, many of their suggestions were, uh, did not earn the, the majority vote that they needed. So the revised version was published. The New Testament published in 1881. The Old Testament published in 1885. And about 300 changes that the Americans desperately wanted to be in there were ignored. And so they insisted there be an appendix with all their proposals listed. And there was. However, there were some problems with the revised version. Now, one, one benefit for it 
was that they were using a better version of the Greek. Uh, so the KJV had used a, a, what, the best available in 1611. By 1881 and 1885, there were some better, uh, more reliable manuscripts available. They used a more reliable manuscript, so that was good. But the drawback was they were so keen on staying right to the Greek that they actually uh, made it kind of difficult to read. Uh, they tried to keep the word order. They tried to translate it in, in such a precise way that it made it a little more jumbled than even the KJV had been. The preacher Charles Spurgeon, he was a famous uh, influential preacher in England, he described the Revised Version as being strong in Greek and weak in English. So, needless to say, the, K the Revised Version was not terribly popular, and it did not achieve its goal of replacing the KJV. We remember the Americans. The Americans felt a bit slighted. Uh, one could say that they were being subject to decisions which, in which they had not been adequately represented. And so in 1901, as soon as uh, was legally possible, they had signed some agreements that they would not try to publish their own version uh, for about 16 years. As soon as it was possible, in 1901, the American Committee published the American Standard Version. And those 300 proposals they had made, they included in this version of Scripture. They, had, they fixed it so that everything that they thought the English had gotten wrong, they got right. Uh, and this became the American Standard Version. There were a couple of uh, hallmarks of this version. One was that the name the Lord in the Old Testament. Now, we, we read the Lord. This is the English that lays on top of the divine name of what you might say Yahweh, the Lord was changed in the American Standard Version, and you can, you can probably guess what they called it. I won't make you guess. They, they used the German vocalization of the divine name, which is Jehovah. The American Standard Version was known because the Old Testament consistently called God Jehovah. Now, this wasn't very popular because Jehovah just kind of grated on the ears in liturgy. The Lord sounded much more pleasant. Churches didn't really like this choice of word. The other changes that ASV made were for the sake of euphemism. So I'm not sure if the Americans were a little squeamish or what, but there were a few places, uh, for example, that the word bowels showed up in the English Revised Version. In uh, 2 Samuel 20.10, uh, we get a description of a man being run through by a sword and his bowels spilled out. It's a little gruesome. Well, the, the, the ASV translators, they couldn't really figure out a way around that, so they kept bowels in 2 Samuel 20. But then they got to Jeremiah 19.4, and this is what we read in, in the revised version. My bowels, my bowels, I am pained at my very heart. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. <laughs> It seems that bowels, the, the, the gut was where the heart was, that this, the, the place of compassion maybe or the place of feeling was in the gut. And so maybe that's why the word uh, gets translated or the, why the word in the, the underlying uh, Hebrew was bowels. We're not sure. The American Standard Version thought that A, wasn't terribly intelligible and B, maybe it was a little bit um, uncomfortable language to have in a church service, and so they changed it to, my anguish, my anguish, I am pained at my very heart. This is one example, and there are many others, of how the American Standard Version made some updates to the language. 
What it did well, though, in comparison to the revised version, is that it removed some archaic terms. This was an interesting, uh, one of the interesting rules of the revised version was that they refused to use any vocabulary not in use in 1611. And that's a bit of a constraint because the English language had moved on, but they wanted to keep so close to the KJV that they, they wanted to even keep the language close. The American Standard Version translators said, no, we're, we're going to update some of these archaic terms. Uh, some of these updates were grammatical. Uh, there was a tendency to use the word which when, when speaking of people. The American Standard Version uses who. Uh, and, and it also updated some words that just had fallen out of the English language. One of the big drawbacks to the American Standard Version was that it was even more uh, closely tied to the Greek and Hebrew than the Revised Version had been. The Revised Version was already a little bit hard. As we said, it was, it was good in Greek and, and poor in English, or weak in English. The ASV was even more so. They tried to retain the word order of the Greek, and this caused all kinds of issues. And if any of, uh, there's maybe two people here that have taken Greek. If you've taken uh, New Testament Greek, what you will find is the word order doesn't really matter. And so the subject could show up anywhere in the sentence. Um, and if you're trying to take it into the English and keep that word order, you end up with a bit of a jumble of, of words. And the ASV was criticized for this. It was, it was too close, and it wasn't, uh, almost wasn't clear to English uh, readers. The ASV ultimately was more popular in America than the revised version had been in England, but neither was successful in unseating the KJV. The KJV continued to be the most popular version. We move forward to 1952. After World War II, it became apparent that another revision was needed. And this time it was a revision not of the KJV, but of the American Standard Version, the ASV. American scholars uh, began thinking about this in the 30s. They reached out to Britain. The 40s came. World War II came. There was never a, uh, it was never really good timing. And the Americans and the British never quite got together to work on this together as they had hoped. But the American committee persisted, and they published a New Testament in 1946 and the Old Testament in 1952. This revised standard version was worked on by scholars who uh, actually received no stipend or honoraria. They were doing it uh, for the, the greater good uh, because at this time we were coming out of the Depression and there was just no money to be offered. Even funding the effort had been tricky. There were some big changes though, that the RSV introduced. And it was not uniformly accepted. We remember, uh, I think last week or maybe the week before, we talked about Matthew 1.23. This is when the angel, uh, there's, a, there's a, pro a prophecy that the young woman or the virgin in Matthew will be with child and his name will be Emmanuel. This was the, the prophecy that Matthew uses to explain Jesus' birth when we study. Matthew is referring back to Isaiah 7:14. Young woman, this word is now virgin. Tuagent in the Greek uh, Old Testament, we read that this word is now virgin. For hundreds, actually thousands of years, the church had followed the reading of the Septuagint. A virgin will be with child. 
for Isaiah 7.14. The King James Version that used Hebrew underneath its Old Testament, the Revised Version used virgin, the woman. Now, this is one verse out of hundreds of verses, maybe thousands, one word out of hundreds of thousands of words, but it illustrated uh, a difference in approach to translation. And that difference was so significant that there were many people that just rejected the RSV. They said, no, this, this is not, not my Bible, is, is, I guess, the attitude that was taken. And the difference is this. It really depends on how you understand prophecy. For hundreds and thousands of years, the prophecy, we, we talked about this with the Septuagint, the prophetic books were put at the very end of the Old Testament, right before Jesus, because prophecy was understood to be future telling. It's all pointing towards Jesus. By the time of the RSV, there, was, there, were, there were two churches had thought for, for hundreds and thousands of years, and this was part of the tradition. And if, and if, if that, if, if Isaiah 7.14 is talking about Jesus, it has to be a virgin. Because after all, every Sunday we stand up and we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, conceived by the, not Joseph, by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. It's very important. It's very important that Mary is a virgin. It's important for our theology. It was important for, uh, the, in the tradition of the church. And so one view is that that prophecy is future telling. The other view is that prophecy is kind of like a, it comes around again. It's like a rechargeable battery. It's, it's truth, it's divine truth spoken at a per certain point in time, and it's also divine truth that applies to us today, or that could apply at another point in time. And so this was another view. And there were people who said, well, it's okay that it's young woman. Because Isaiah was, was, was getting a divine word that was true then, and it was also true for Jesus, because Mary was a young woman. Uh, the RSV translators seem to have, have gone in that direction, at least, that so they wanted to stay very true to the Hebrew. They might, may have known or anticipated that this would cause an issue. I don't know if they anticipated the issue that it did cause. Well, in the end... Many, uh, many churches rejected the RSV. It was adopted by many of the mainline Protestants. One interesting story was that a pastor uh, actually publicly burned the RSV in protest, uh, calling, uh, you know, claiming that it was not inspired. He sent the ashes of that Bible to the head of the committee that had uh, been in charge of uh, translating the RSV. And it was an interesting note, uh, on the, I guess, on the pages of history that Several hundred years after William Tyndale had dared to put scripture into English and had been burned at the stake for it, several hundred years later, um, the loss was a copy of the book, not the translators themselves. And perhaps that is, perhaps that is progress. Um, that was the RSV. Now, we think about this Isaiah 14, our interpretation of it. This is a big issue for a lot of people that reject the RSV. And so, uh, not just because of this, but, but that mentality, that, that thought process was an issue. So we get, in 1982, the new King James Version. Now, we talked about folks that are they're heavy on the KJV-only churches. Uh, this new King James Version uh, perhaps was meant to kind of 
kind of bridge. Well, we don't want to use the old language, but we, we may want to update a little bit, but we don't want to update it like the RSV did. And so we get the New King James Version. This was a version uh, translated by a committee that was 130 scholars on this committee. Uh, they were primarily evangelical Protestant scholars. And it was intended to follow the King James as closely as possible. They actually went back so, uh, so much so that they went back and used the New Testament Greek source that the King James Version had used. And we've already said that there were new manuscripts discovered that, that seemed by scholars to be more reliable. They used, they used what the King James used. They wanted to stick that closely to it. And you can imagine what happened to Isaiah 714. The Virgin shows back up in the New King James. That brings us to 1990. The new RSV, the new Revised Standard Version. This is uh, a Bible that m many of us may be familiar with. It, I, I believe we use it often in the Presbyterian Church. This version was, again, a revision. It was a revision of the RSV, which was a revision of the ASV, which was a revision of the KJV, which was based on the work of Tyndale. <laughs> and so you can see how the family lines up here. The New Revised Standard Version uh, was, uh, was compiled by a committee of uh, about 30 scholars in light of the new discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls and their translation, uh, this, th this was all considered as they undertook the NRSV. There were four goals of this translation. One was to eliminate archaic words and grammar. One, second was to retain as much of the flow of the KJV as possible. Third, to improve accuracy and clarity of translation. And the fourth goal that they had was the most controversial. That was to use gender-inclusive language where it was possible, given the historical context and the, and the, of the situation. And so we, we, we get some of these examples. The Revised Standard Version says in John 12, 32, uh, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Uh, the word underneath that could mean men as a group. It also could mean men and women as a group. Uh, in Greek and in Hebrew, the masculine plural can either mean exclusively a group of men or inclusively men and women. The feminine plural only means women. And so if you've got 20 women and one guy, sorry ladies, the guy seems to be most important, uh, it becomes a masculine plural noun that describes that big group. And so where it was possible, the NRSV made these updates. And this is what it says for John 12:32. Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. That was the kind of change being made in the NRSV. We might recall uh, Matthew 4.4. 4. Jesus is tempted by the, uh, the devil in the desert, and he responds to the first temptation, turn the stone into bread. In the RSV, man shall not live by bread alone. In the NRSV, we get one shall not live by bread alone. It's a small change. It was a very controversial change for many people, and still is. The NRSV was also designed to be ecumenical, and it, it actually includes all of the Protestant books of the Bible. It also eventually included the Apocrypha, books recognized by Catholics, and even Eastern Orthodox churches in it. And so this was an attempt to, uh, to create a Bible that was perhaps in some way inclusive and for everyone. Now, not everybody accepted it, but that was, that was the hope. So that's 
the family of the King James. And if you've ever gone to Bible Gateway or you've gone to one of these uh, services on your, on your phone, on an app, or online, you know that there's many, many more English translations than this. And so we're going to talk a little bit more next week about what those translations are. Um, okay. Yeah. We always have more content. One of the things that is a hallmark of teaching here at First Pres is to plan for about an hour and 40 minutes of material for about a 50-minute uh, lecture, and I think yeah. we've managed to do that once again. Uh, so you're welcome. Uh, so what we're going to do next time is we're going to talk, we're going to take a step back. That's pr primarily, Cassie has brought us through then a history of revision of KJVs uh, through the 1990s. All along in that process, there's a proliferation of English Bible translations, dozens and dozens, maybe even hundreds of English Bible translations come to be. And so what we're going to do next week, in our last and final week, again, meeting over in the uh, Berean room, is we're going to talk about the different philosophies, two main philosophies that drive the creation of kind of two families of translation into English. We're going to look at them, we're going to give some examples of them, and then we're going to think more specifically about some of the challenges that, that translators face when trying to update ancient, ancient language, language from, from 2,000 years ago. How do we update that in terms of metaphors and idioms and expressions? What does it mean to update that into English? So we'll reflect on some of those matters next week in our last and final week of this course. Thanks so much for coming out this morning, and we hope to see you then.